Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. If politicians seem reluctant to take the blame for making mistakes, perhaps we voters should take some of the blame for their reluctance. Here's Dan Bang of University College London speaking on the Naked Neuroscience show Brain Development, Decisions, Decisions. You can say that the general voter tends to prefer confident people. We want to know that those people who are in charge know what they're doing. But that sort of introduces a different incentive scheme, if you like, for confidence, such that if you're a politician, you might realise that even though you have doubt about a certain policy or a certain plan for, for, for government, then it's going to be in your interest to have overconfidence in that policy or in that plan, because you know that that's going to turn into some political currency for you. It just really highlights the social aspect of confidence when you get to this larger political scale. We're talking about blame and responsibility this week. And let's face it, there's plenty to go round. My guests are Professor Bertram Marley from Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, a specialist in social cognition, moral psychology and human-robot interaction, and a regular contributor, Dr Kitty Alone, research fellow here at the Wolf Institute with specialism in the cognitive science of religion and morality and moral transference. Well, welcome both. Bertram, do our political and social instincts militate against taking responsibility for making mistakes? I'm not sure I can talk about instincts, uh, such a loaded term, but I think there is a resistance for sure against our desire to feel competent, to feel strong, to feel right. And thus it is hard to admit mistakes, even to ourselves, but even more so to others. Uh, Who wants to feel incompetent, appear weak, wrong, immoral? And so this Reluctance, I think, uh, only begins to subside when we really face reality, escape evidence, uh, except maybe for some uh, current presidents uh, for whom reality and evidence are not exactly uh, changing their minds. But in seriousness, I think saying things out loud and 
admitting weakness is difficult for everybody and and even more so for anybody in the limelight like a politician. And do you think it's become more difficult in recent years? I don't think it has become necessarily more difficult, but what we see are two very different strands. On the one hand, you see the continued reluctance and difficulty. On the other hand, you see also sort of the letting loose of inhibitions and criticism just rising uh, in intensity and maybe in frequency. And those two things do not go along very well. If On the one side, you have a lot of criticism and, and sometimes outrage and really unfair accusations. And on the other side, the difficulty of handling even the fair ones, let alone the unfair ones, I think that just leads to more conflict and less reconciliation. And criticism in the best of worlds, moral or other criticism, leads to improvement, whereas unfair criticism leads to more defensiveness. So we are not going in the right direction in this way. I mean, Kitty, we all make mistakes, don't we? There's plenty of blame to go round. So why is it such a problem to own up? Well, I think Bertram sort of hit upon it, really. Nobody wants to look deficient, particularly in the moral domain. And it's funny you were talking about um, sort of politics and the way that people in the public eye handle criticism or accusations. In the classic sort of Washington evasive passive structure is mistakes were made. And of course, what you're doing there is you're sort of completely removing any kind of semantic subject from, from the sentence. So it's a way of sort of diffusing responsibility and arguably um, not actually taking full responsibility. But what we often find, for example, is that people will preemptively confess, perhaps as a strategy to try and mitigate punishment or in some sort of counterintuitive way, restore their reputation. Experimentally, it's been shown that um, although on the face of it, it may seem completely absurd to admit to something that you have not done. Experimentally, it's relatively easy to do in the lab. Also, it's to do with this idea of restoring your moral compass, if you like, restoring your moral value by confessing openly to having committed a transgression. And it kind of signals that you are a moral person. It signals that you share the same moral norms and that you are prepared to put commitment into reattaining those moral norms. And to do that, you become more trustworthy in the eye of the person that's accusing you. Kitty, do you think that part of this phenomenon actually is explained by the fact that if you didn't do anything wrong, you don't feel guilty, therefore you actually feel good about yourself, and therefore you are more willing to accept maybe brief lowering of your status, but you know you regain it very quickly. So there's, a, there's an advantage in the equation that if you feel okay about yourself, you can go along with a little bit of loss of, of social points. Sure. It's it's definitely sort of a really delicate game, I suppose, that people play. And it's interesting you said something along the lines of, well, you can't feel guilty if you haven't done anything. Um, but arguably, you can. So I'm really interested in these ideas where you feel guilty for things that you haven't done. So do you inherit some kind of guilt or sort of evaluation of blame for something that generations of ancestors did, for example? Or are things like thoughts open for evaluations of blame? rather than actual behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. I think we could probably talk about guilt for the rest of the session. It's uh, interesting. You, you go even one step further by looking at guilt for something that you haven't really done and haven't even causally been able to contribute. We've done a little bit of research comparing guilt for something you did unintentionally and something for di you did intentionally. And so at first you would assume, well, if guilt is sort of internalized blame, you anticipate others' criticism, so you feel guilty in, in proportion. 
that for intentional violations, you would feel more guilty than for unintentional ones, which we know is true for blame. But it's actually the opposite. People feel guilty for unintentional violations more so than for intentional ones. And you might think, oh, people just justify their intentional ones. But we showed in in various ways by comparing the right kinds of means that it's really the increase of guilt for unintentional violations that stood out. And to me, that was just fascinating. And so I thought, what could be going on? And one thing that might be going on, and maybe we can try to apply that to your case, see how it works. If you get blamed more strongly for intentional than unintentional ones, it also means you get some mitigation, you get some forgiveness for the unintentional ones, as long as you don't do it again. So if you unintentionally insulted me, I do expect that you now intend to really take care of that in the future, that not anything near that insulting will occur. So your guilt might actually keep going as a strong reminder not to do this again, as a preventive mechanism. And so it's almost like society hands it to the person in the form of guilt that they will prevent this repeated accident, this repeated moral infraction in the future. So do you think that anything like that could also uh, apply to the case in which you take on guilt for something that really you had no causal influence because you weren't even born, because you weren't around at all. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I've always found it fascinating, this idea of where does blame stop? How long can it possibly go on for? Am I to blame for something that my ancestors did 10 years ago? Or does it stop at 25 years? Or does it go on 100 years, 200 years? I mean, where where does blame stop? Is it transmitted down almost like sort of genetic material, if you like? I, I wonder whether... It will continue if there is no reconciliation, if there there was no group analog of the interpersonal repairing of a relationship, because that's what we do in, in the best of circumstances. If I commit a moral violation and my wife or a good friend will criticize me for it, my hope is, and my wife or friend's hope is, that I will form an intention to do better Uh, maybe explain the specific circumstances, maybe have a little bit of justification, which allows them to blame me actually a little less and continue the relationship. And then after reconciliation, we can actually go on. And it is in the past. Whereas if there was never any reconciliation, maybe because of power structures. uh, I mean, I, I see this so, so sadly and intensely the way the US government and, and maybe largely also the population have never reconciled with Native Americans. Yes, we are now beginning to face racism and institutional racism uh, against people of color more broadly, but of course, uh, specifically to people who were enslaved in this country, Black uh, African Americans. But there isn't really nearly as much in attempts to reconnect with Native Americans. There was never really any form of reconciliation. And I think that for some reason, Americans don't even feel guilt anymore. I don't know how that happened, but it's really almost out of mind. And I think it would take a lot to really bring that back and and shape any form of reconciliation. It's really quite sad. I mean, in Australia and in in New Zealand, uh, there have been many more and and I think successful efforts to reconcile with, with indigenous populations. And we've just really not done much at all here in the U.S., 
Is there a difference between the individual and, and the communal here? So, you know, I, I, I can take an individual responsibility for actions, my own and possibly even my parents. But then there's the generational or there's the group, there's the communal, there's the national. Is there something else going on? We found in the research recently undertaken at the Wolf Institute that attitudes towards diversity, you mentioned issues of ethnicity, Bertram, that personal attitudes are actually quite positive, encouragingly positive. So, for example, 74% of people, and we did a survey of over 11,000, 74% of people, if they were asked the question, how would you feel if a close relative married a black person, for example, if they weren't black, 74% were positive about it. But we know that racism is an institutional entrenched structural form of racism as well. So is there a difference? A long-winded question. Is there a difference between the individual and the institutional form of uh, blame and blame inheritance? First of all, there's a huge difference between interpersonal and intergroup. And then even when you have this society of strangers that we nowadays have, there's a huge difference between our interpersonal relationships, maybe with the person of color with whom we work or the one who lives in our neighborhood. And the group, this abstract, still sometimes enemy, this uh, unknown, this other. If you want to think a little bit about evolution, in 12,000 years of human settlements, we have not really had any genetic uh, improvement. We have still the same genes that were adapted to small group living, nomadic uh, hunter-gatherer societies, uh, 30, 40 people where you know everybody and where you have to reconcile with everybody. You can't easily afford to have continuous conflicts and fights because your group is really interdependent. So you put effort into that reconciliation. And from what we know, anthropological research, there was relatively little actual punishment in these groups. And we see this in, in the few that still have existed in the last 100 years that was blaming, that was criticizing, but the need for reconciliation was really great. There were relationships. What form of reconciliation there are between groups within a country, between countries, quite unclear. And we, we don't know those others. They, they are really representations. They're not actual people. So I think that makes already a huge difference in our ability to respond to uh, each other. It's also interesting that you mentioned the E word, the evolution word, because I'm always fascinated by, well, what would be the function of something like blame? Is it a social glue? Is it something that we need across history, sort of we scaled up human societies? Is this blame, forgiveness, reconciliation? Are they all different mechanisms of something that essentially the purpose is to bind big communities together under a moral framework? I would agree. That's probably the best hypothesis we have. There are some primatologists and, and anthropologists who try to sort of explain that transition between our chimpanzee-like ancestry uh, that was very much, you know, dominance hierarchies, and then the long phase of humans living in these small groups with no possessions, uh, very little hierarchy, almost fierce egalitarianism. And criticism is enough to remind each other of the norms, like food sharing, a big deal in these groups. Because if you don't share food, the, the community will break down. So criticism is enough to bring each other in line. But think about a larger population, especially that has people in power, people with less power. 
very soon criticism, interpersonal reconciliation doesn't work anymore. So new glue has to come in. And I think we know that laws are not exactly the same anymore. They are both forms of oppression and forms of, of, of keeping order. They can be abused. And so I think that, yeah, criticism in, in its more mild, more humane form is something that works in small communities. And I mean, think about if we were over a cup of coffee and, and one of us suddenly did something the other would find quite unacceptable. We wouldn't start a war. We would maybe use the weakest form of expressing our criticism and expecting that the other would immediately respond. It would be quite problematic if there were immediately some kind of hostility. We would not have that relationship anymore. So there's a way in which small amounts are enough for small groups and ever larger amounts are needed for larger groups. And that's sort of a, a real challenge in, in today's society. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Bertrand Marley and Kitty Alone. We're discussing blame and responsibility. You know, something odd is going on. While there seems to be some reluctance to criticise people in the public square, the torrent of abuse on social media gets ever more voluminous and toxic. Here's Claire Hardacre of Lancaster University speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast, Are You Safe Online? So let's say something starts trending on Twitter. People click on the trending topic, whatever that topic is. They then see loads of tweets that are abusive. They find those tweets funny and engaging and entertaining, and then they join in because they've seen lots of other people already doing it. Those people then start to form this really transient network. It might only last 10 minutes. It might last an hour. Sometimes it can last days if it's going really badly for the person involved. And they start liking, retweeting and laughing and joking with each other, going, ha ha, isn't she an idiot? Well, she should never have done this then. And they are sort of pouring fuel on their own fire. They're, they're all encouraging each other to continue to be even more abusive. And they're seeking more and more likes, more and more retweets by getting ever more extreme. So it has this polarizing factor of I have an audience and I want to impress them even more. And I want to be, you know, the wittiest, the nastiest, the most extreme. And so that can really exaggerate people's behavior. Could it be that our inability to call out bad behaviour generates uh, certain frustration and then into vile abuse that is spewed out in our social media? Kitty? Well, as we were talking about sort of the evolution of small-scale groups, um, the internet is sort of something evolutionarily novel in terms of human sort of existence. And... Yes. So it's difficult to know where this vitriol that you see spilling out from the depths of the Internet comes from. I mean, it's been argued that a lot of it is to do with anonymity. So we are social creatures. Our reputation is incredibly important. Without being accountable, when you can hide your personhood, when you're anonymous, people are much more likely to engage in immoral or unethical behaviours. And it kind of acts almost like a licence. So you're hidden behind your keyboard and you can write vitriol and you can write really terrible, toxic things because you don't have to be accountable. You've got those reputational concerns removed. It's interesting that you said a lack of blame. I mean, some people would argue that the internet 
it's sort of becoming a blame playground, if you like. So you go on Twitter these days and inevitably somebody will have said something that someone finds offensive. So there's a strange dichotomy, I think, that the one hand, there's this reluctance to publicly blame unless you have warrant, as Bertrand can talk more about. But there is also this sort of hyper blame that seems to be something that associates itself with the Internet and this online community of people who are sort of morally safeguarding the Internet. Yeah, it's interesting to hear what you think, Bertram. I mean, we're only beginning to understand the, the full dynamic of especially social media. You know, some newspapers stopped having comment sections because people got into such uh, vile discussions that they constantly had to delete every other comment. But I think one of the ways in which we can think about it is that this isn't any more blame. It isn't blame in the sense that I show my respect by expressing my criticism because I assume that you actually have a shared norm and value system. And by criticizing, I then hope that we both repair whatever relationship we had. There is no relationship between whether it's anonymous or even name-carrying individuals. They are removed from each other. They see no facial reactions of horror, of anger. There are no costs to over-expressing, to over-blaming, as, as we are beginning to use this term. Whereas in reality, over-blaming is actually a non-violation. If I accuse you of something that you didn't do, or I blame you strongly for a small violation, if we are part of a group of friends or of colleagues, that would not be acceptable. Because there are costs. We know in our group, if everybody starts over-blaming everybody, that group would break down. On the internet, these groups are newly constituted. Each time a new article receives commentary. And on Twitter, there are followers, but those are not groups. They, they're not interacting. They are reacting. And so I, I think the, the lack of costs is one thing. And, and I think Ed is right. Whatever frustration and aggression you might have carried into the situation, you then are free to express it in some way. And people don't realize that really expressing aggression leads to more aggression, not only in the other who responds, but also in ourselves. So this limitless permission to express, I think, is, is really quite problematic. Let me take you back to Jeffrey Howe's famous resignation speech over 30 years ago, when he spoke of Margaret Thatcher's bruising negotiating stance over the European community budget. And he said, and I quote, it's rather like sending your opening batsman to the crease only to find, as the first balls are being bowled, that their bats have been broken before the game by the team captain. Now, the reason I quoted, is it just a matter of rhetoric? Um, does the sort of quaint cricketing simile disguise the criticism? Does it intensify it? Have we lost, based on what you, you were just talking about, uh, Kitty and Bertram, have we lost the ability that how Jeffrey Howe showed to be directly critical without being insulting? If you can strike a balance between justifiably criticising your own team, if it were, in pursuit of the greater good, it can come across very well. It's a very difficult game to play. But if you can express some degree of self-reflection, self-criticism, it opens you up to others as being a much more trustworthy person. Yeah. And one thing we, we really sort of hate is hypocrisy, where somebody blames somebody else, though having done the same thing maybe in the past or does it in parallel. And I think what's so interesting, I, I had to read the transcript that you referred to, Ed, and he keeps saying my honorable friend and 
I think there really is and was a relationship between them. So to show respect is to criticize lightly, maybe with metaphor, maybe indirectly. But to criticize also means that you still are friends. That is, by not ignoring the other, rejecting and dismissing the other, but rather taking on that difficult task of, I criticize and I need you to know how I feel about you. And of course, also there's a whole public audience that he had to handle. But I think there's something quite profound about the idea that respect and criticism go together. And if you criticize without respect, the criticism loses its moral power and it becomes more fight rather than criticism. There's an element of uh, Shakespeare's uh, Mark Antony and Brutus, you know, the honourable Brutus. Do you remember? And so there's this relationship, but the word honourable is not a positive. It becomes more and more vindictive. When you read it, it's black and white. There's not the colour. When you watch it, if you watch a YouTube a version of that resignation speech, it's incredibly powerful. There's not a lot of love there. Um, that love has been, um, has been uh, broken asunder. And, and maybe because they were close, Bertram, it actually feeds into this, this um, anger and this um, blame. Yes, and I think that just as there is some evidence that blaming in a more restrained way can maintain relationships, uh, as we said, in small groups in particular, but also in individual relationships, interpersonal relationships, there is a form of blame turning into punishment and punishment ends relationships. If I no longer am willing to engage in the interaction of criticism, uh, maybe remorse, forgiveness, and then moving on, but if I punish as a person or as, as an institution, there is no relationship anymore. I mean, this is, this is why it's so detrimental that we have institutionalized uh, criticism and powerful punishment. And it almost seems, even though historically the arc goes down, at least in the U.S. in the last few decades, uh, the arc has gone up again, intensity and frequency of, of punishment. There is no relationship between the punisher and the punished. If the state punishes, and whether it's incarceration or, in the worst case, the death penalty in a few U.S. states, there's nothing there. There's nothing left. And if then the person returns from prison and is also not reintegrated with the community, let alone with the state, you really have no functional future together and, and even alone. So this is, I think, one of the really sad changes in, in larger and larger societies. That criticism is not really a tool anymore, but it becomes punishment replacing criticism and blame. Well, we're coming towards the end and I'm going to give you each the opportunity to own up, to own up to some recent misdeed now in a form of you don't have to offer a confession. But, you know, are you able to acknowledge a responsibility for some act for which you have rightly been blamed or perhaps no one's blamed you at all. Bertram, you first. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I would rather not admit to a misdeed without my lawyer present. <laughs> but I'll tell you something that my wife and I have adopted. It's, it's a practice that goes as follows. When we have an argument, and it could be about claims of facts. Uh, one says, no, it was four years ago. And the other says, no, 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 that was two years ago. 
And we all know that we can get into these uh, very confident statements and claims. What we have agreed to and really do now quite reliably is when then reality comes out, it was really four years ago. The one who was wrong, who wrongly confidently claimed the other thing, has to say, you were right and I was wrong. And we literally have to use those words. And I'll tell you, it still stings a little to have to say that. But it is powerful because the other almost is invited immediately to forgive. And any kind of disagreement is just that, disagreement over facts. That can also be about somewhat more uh, morally tinged and not just factual disagreements. So I think this is... We really needed to practice that. It was not easy the first time. So whatever misdeeds there are or small disagreements there are, being able to say that and practice saying it, I think goes a little bit towards that reconciliation and also reinstating our own self-image, but still being able to admit. Well, being completely blameless. Uh, <laughs> oh, gosh, I'm... Um... I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but when I was a teenager, I just passed my driving test and I drove it out and I sort of, you know, got really overconfident and tried to park it and ended up scratching my dad's new paintwork. I drove it home, parked it in the the carport and he saw it and inevitably went absolutely ballistic. And he thought it was, he blamed my mum for doing it. Oh, your bloody mother's done this again. And I said nothing. I didn't own up. And to this day, I still feel guilty about it. Um, not guilty enough to actually tell her, though. <laughs> but maybe if I just sort of the, go through the ritualized confession, maybe that'll alleviate some of my guilt rather than actually trying to make interpersonal amends. Who knows? Kitty, you're pardoned. That's all for this week. Thanks to my guests, Bertram Marley and Kitty alone. We'd like to hear from you at nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. Let us know where we're going wrong or what we're getting right. If you'd like to catch up with our back catalogue, which includes episodes on Einstein, nudge theory, racism and many, many more, you can find them and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. I'll be back next week with some more guests. 